Section 15 of Tish, The Chronicle of Her Excursions and Escapades, by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Tish's Spy The Adventure of the Red-Headed Detective, The Lady Chauffeur, and The Man Who Could Not Tell the Truth. Chapter 1 it is easy enough, of course, to look back on our Canadian experience and see where we went wrong. What I particularly resent is the attitude of Charlie Sands. I am writing this for his benefit. It seems to me that a clean statement of the case is due to Tish, and in less degree to Aggie and myself. It goes back long before the mysterious cipher. Even the incident of our abducting the girl in the pink tam-o'-shanter was, after all, the inevitable result of the series of occurrences that preceded it. It is my intention to give this series of occurrences in their proper order, and without bias. Herbert Spencer says that every act of one's life is the unavoidable result of every act that has preceded it. Naturally, therefore, I begin with the engagement by Tish of a girl as chauffeur. But even before that there were contributing causes. There was the faulty rearing of the MacDonald youth, for instance, and Tish's aesthetic dancing. And afterward there was Aggie's hay fever, which made her sneeze and let go of a rope at a critical moment. Indeed, Aggie's hay fever may be said to be one of the fundamental causes being the reason we went to Canada. It was like this. Along in June of the year before last, Aggie suddenly announced that she was going to spend the summer in Canada. It's the best thing in the world for hay fever, she said, avoiding Tish's eye. Mrs. Ostermeyer says she never sneezed once last year. The northern lights fill the air with ozone or something like that. Fill the air with ozone, Tish scoffed. Fill Mrs. Ostermeyer's skull with ozone instead of brains more likely. Tish is a good woman, a sweet woman indeed, but she has a vein of gentle irony which she inherited from her maternal grandfather, who was on the supreme bench of his country. However, that spring she was inclined to be irritable. She could not drive her car, and that was where the trouble really started. Tish had taken up aesthetic dancing in Marib, wearing no stays and a midi blouse and short skirt, and during a fairy dance, where she was to twirl on her right toes, keeping the three other limbs horizontal, she twisted her right lower limb severely. Though not incapacitated, she could not use it properly, and failing one day to put on the brake quickly, she drove into an open front butter and egg shop. This was the time one of the newspapers headed the article. Even the eggs scrambled. When Tish decided to have a chauffeur for a time, she advertised. There were plenty of replies, but all of the applicants smoked cigarettes, a habit Tish very properly deplores. The idea of securing a young woman was, I must confess, mine. Plenty of young women drive cars, I said, and drive well, and at least they don't light a cigarette every time one stops to let a train go by. Huh, Tish commented, and have a raft of men about all the time. Nevertheless, she acted on the suggestion, 
advertising for a young woman who could drive a car and had no followers. Hutchins answered. She was very pretty and not over twenty, but asked about men her face underwent a change, almost a hardening. You'll not be bothered with men, she said briefly. I detest them. And this seemed to be the truth. Charlie Sands, for instance, for whose benefit this is being written, absolutely failed to make any impression on her. She met his overtures with cold disdain. She was also adamant to the men at the garage, succeeding in having the gasoline filtered through a chamois skin to take out the water, where Tish had for years begged for the same thing without success. Though a dashing driver, Hutchins was careful. She sat on the small of her back and hurled us past the traffic policeman with a smile. Her name was really Hutchinson, but it took so long to say it at the rate she ran the car that Tish changed it to Hutchins. Really, the whole experiment seemed to be an undoubted success when Aggie got the notion of Canada into her head. Now, as it happens, owing to Tish's disapproval, Aggie gave up the Canada idea in favour of Nantucket, sometime in June. But she had not reckoned with Tish's subconscious self. Tish was interested that spring in the subconscious self. You may remember that only a year or so before it had been the fourth dimension. She became convinced that if one were sufficiently earnest, one could go through closed doors and see into solids. In the former ambition she was unsuccessful, obtaining only bruises and disappointment, but she did develop the latter to a certain extent, for she met the laundress going out one day, and without a conscious effort she knew that she had the best table napkins pinned to her petticoat. She accused the woman sternly, and she had six. Nantucket, said Tish. Why Nantucket? I have a niece there, and you said you hated Canada. On the contrary, Tish replied with her eyes partly shut. I find that my subconscious self has adopted and been working on the Canadian suggestion. What a wonderful thing is this buried and greater ego. Worms, rifles, fishing rods, the complete angler, mosquito netting, canned goods and sleeping bags, all in my mind and in orderly array. Worms, I said, with, I confess, a touch of scorn in my voice. If you will tell me, Tish Carberry, life preservers, chanted Tish's subconscious self, rubber blankets, small tent, folding camp beds, a camp stove, a meat saw, a wood saw, and some beads and gigaws for placating the Indians. Then she opened her eyes and took up her knitting. There are no worms in Canada, Lizzie. Just as there are no snakes in Ireland, they were all destroyed during the glacial period. There are plenty of worms in the United States, I said with spirit. I dare say they could crawl over the border, unless, of course, they object to being British subjects. She ignored me, however, and getting up, went to one of her bureau drawers. We saw then that her subconscious self had written down lists of various things for the Canadian excursion. There was one headed foodstuffs, others were necessary clothing, 
camp outfit, fishing tackle, weapons of defense, and diversions. Under this last heading, it had placed binoculars, yarn and needles, life preservers, a prayer book, and a cribbage board. Boats, she said, we can secure from the Indians who make them, I believe, of hollow logs, and I shall rent a motorboat. Hutchins says she can manage one. When she's not doing that, she can wash dishes. We had been rather chary of motorboats, you may remember, since the time on Lake Penzance, when something jammed on our engine, and we had gone madly round the lake a number of times, with people on various docks trying to lasso us with ropes. Considering that it was she who had started the whole thing, and got Tish's subconscious mind to working, Aggie was rather pettish. Huh, she said, I can't swim and you know it, Tish. Those canoe things turn over if you so much as sneeze in them. You'll not sneeze, said Tish. The northern lights fill the air with ozone. Aggie looked at me helplessly, but I could do nothing. Only the year before, Tish, as you may recall, had taken us out into the main woods without any outfit at all, and we had lived on snared rabbits and things that no Christian woman ought to put into her stomach. This time we were at least to go provisioned and equipped. "'Where are we going?' Aggie asked. "'Far from a white man,' said Tish, "'away from milk wagons and children on velocipedes "'and the grocer calling up every morning for an order. "'We'll go to the far north, Aggie, "'where the red man still treads his native forests. "'We'll make our camp by some lake, "'where the deer come at early morning to drink "'and fish leap to see the sunset.' "'Well, it sounded rather refreshing,' though I confess that, until Tish mentioned it, I had always thought that fish leaped in the evening to catch mosquitoes. We sent for Hutchins at once. She was always respectful, but never subservient. She stood in the doorway while Tish explained. How far north, she said crisply. Tish told her. We'll have no cut-and-dried destination, she said. There's a little steamer goes up the river I have in mind. We'll get off when we see a likely place. Are you going for trout or bass? Tish was rather uncertain, but she said bass on a chance, and Hutchins nodded her approval. If it's bass, I'll go, she said. I'm not fond of trout fishing. We shall have a motorboat. Of course, I shall not take the car. Hutchins agreed indifferently. Don't you worry about the motorboat, she said. Sometimes they go, and sometimes they don't, and I'll help round the camp, but I'll not wash dishes. Why not? Tish demanded. The reason doesn't really matter, does it? What really concerns you is the fact. Tish stared at her, but instead of quailing before Tish's majestic eye, she laughed a little. I've camped before, she said. I'm very useful about a camp. I like to cook, but I won't wash dishes. I'd like, if you don't mind, to see the grocery order before it goes. Well, Aggie likes to wash dishes if there is plenty of hot water, and Hannah, Tish's maid, refusing to go with us on account of Indians, it seemed wisest to accept Hutchins' services. Hannah's defection was most unexpected. 
as soon as we reached our decision, Tish ordered beads for the Indians, and in the evenings we strung necklaces and so on, while one of us read aloud from the works of Cooper. On the second evening thus occupied, Hannah, who is allowed to come into Tish's sitting-room in the evening and knit, suddenly burst into tears and refused to go. "'My scalp's as good to me as it is to anybody, Miss Tish,' she said hysterically, and nothing would move her. She said she would run no risk of being cooked over her own campfire, and from that time on she would gaze at Tish for long periods, mournfully, as though she wanted to remember how she looked when she was gone forever. Except for Hannah, everything moved smoothly. Tish told Charlie Sands about the plan, and he was quite enthusiastic. Great scheme, he said. Eat a broiled black bass for me, and take the advice of one who knows. Don't skim on your fishing tackle. Get the best. Go light on the canned goods, if necessary, but get the best reels and lines on the market. Nothing in life hurts so much, he said impressively, as to get a three-pound bass to the top of the water and have your line break. I've had a big fellow get away like that, and chase me a mile with its thumb on its nose. This last, of course, was purely figurative. He went away whistling. I wish he had been less optimistic. When we came back and told him the whole story, and he sat with his mouth open and his hair, as he said, crackling at the roots, I reminded him with some bitterness that he had encouraged us. His only retort was to say that the excursion itself had been harmless enough, but that if three elderly ladies, church members in good standing, chose to become freebooters and pirates the moment they got away from a corner policeman, they need not blame him. The last thing he said that day in June was about fishing worms. Take them with you, he said. They charge a cent apiece for them up there, assorted colours, and there's something stolid and British about a Canadian worm. The fish aren't crazy about em. On the other hand, our worms here are, um, vivacious, animated. I've seen a really brisk and on-to-its-job United States worm reach out and clutch a bass by the gills. I believe it was the next day that Tish went to the library and read about worms. Aggie and I had spent the day buying tackle, according to Charlie Sands' advice. We got some very good rods with nickel-plated reels for two dollars and a quarter, a dozen assorted hooks for each person, and a dozen sinkers. The man wanted to sell us what he called a landing net, but I took a good look at it and pinched Aggie. I can make one out of a barrel hoop and mosquito netting, I whispered, so we did not buy it. Perhaps he thought we were novices, for he insisted on showing us all sorts of absurd things. Trolling hooks, he called them, gaff hooks for landing big fish, and a spoon that was certainly no spoon and did not fool us for a minute, being only a few hooks and a red feather. He asked a dollar and a quarter for it. I made one that night at home using a bit of red feather from a duster. It cost me just three cents. Of that, as of Hutchins, more later. Aggie, whose idea of Canada had been the Hotel Frontenac, had grown rather depressed as our preparations proceeded. 
She insisted that night on recalling the fact that Mr. Wiggins had been almost drowned in Canada. He went with the roof and gutter club, Lizzie, she said, and he was a beautiful swimmer, but the water comes from the North Pole, freezing cold, and the first thing he knew, the telephone bell rang just then, it was Tish. I've just come from the library, Lizzie, she said. We'd better raise the worms. We've got a month to do it in. Hutchins and I will be around with the car at eight o'clock tonight. Night is the time to get them. She refused to go into details, but asked us to have an electric flash or two ready and a couple of wooden pails. Also, she said to wear Macintoshes and rubbers. Just before she rang off, she asked me to see that there was a package of oatmeal on hand, but did not explain. When I told Aggie, she eyed me miserably. I wish she'd be either more explicit or less, she said. We'll be arrested again, I know it. Now and then, Tish's enthusiasms have brought us into collision with the law. Not that Tish has not every respect for law and order, but that she is apt to be hasty and at times almost unconventional. You remember, said Aggie, that time she tried to shoot the sheriff, thinking he was a train robber. She started just like this, reading up about walking tours and all that. I'm, I'm nervous, Lizzie. I was staying with Aggie for a few days while my apartment was being papered. To soothe Aggie's nerves, I read aloud from Gibbons's Rome until dinner time, and she grew gradually calmer. After all, Lizzie, she said, she can't get us into mischief with two wooden pails and a package of oatmeal. Tish and Hutchins came promptly at eight, and we got into the car. Tish wore the intent and dreamy look that always preceded her enterprises. There was a tin sprinkling can, quite new, in the tonneau, and we placed our wooden pails beside it, and the oatmeal in it. I confess I was curious, but to my inquiries Tish made only one reply. Worms. Now, I do not like worms, I do not like to touch them, I do not even like to look at them. As the machine went along, I began to have a creepy loathing of them. Aggie must have been feeling the same way, for when my hand touched hers, she squealed. Over her shoulder, Tish told her plan. She said it was easy to get fishing worms at night, and that Hutchins knew of a place a few miles out of town, where the family was away, and where there would be plenty. We'll put them in boxes of earth, she said, and feed them coffee or tea grounds one day, and oatmeal water the next. They propagate rapidly. We'll have a million to take with us. If we only have a hundred thousand at a cent apiece, that's a clear saving of a thousand dollars. We could sell some, I suggested sarcastically, for Tish's enthusiasms have a way of going wrong. But she took me seriously. If there are any fishing clubs about, she said, I dare say they'll buy them, and we can turn the money over to Mr. Ostermeyer for the new organ. Tish had bought the organ and had an evening concert with it before we turned off the main road into a private drive. This is the place. Hutchins said laconically. Tish got out and took a survey. There was shrubbery all round and a very large house, quite dark in the foreground. Drive on to the lawn, Hutchins, she said, 
When the worms come up, the lamps will dazzle them, and they'll be easy to capture. We bumped over a gutter and came to stop in the middle of the lawn. It would be better if it was raining, Tish said. You know yourself, Lizzie, how they come up during a gentle rain. Give me the sprinkling can. I do not wish to lay undue blame on Hutchins, who was young, but it was she who suggested that there would probably be a garden hose somewhere and that it would save time. I know she went with Tish round the corner of the house and that they returned in ten minutes or so, dragging a hose. I broke a toolhouse window, Tish observed, but I left fifty cents on the sill to replace it. It's attached at the other end. Run back, Hutchins, and turn on the water, but not too much. We needn't drown the little creatures. Well, I have never seen anything work better. Aggie, who had refused to put a foot out of the car, stood up in it and held the hose. As fast as she wet a bit of lawn, we followed with the pails. I spread my Macintosh out and knelt on it. The thing took skill. The worms had a way of snapping back into their holes like lightning. Tish got about three to my one and talked about packing them in moss and ice and feeding them every other day. Hutchins, however, stood on the lawn with her hands in her pockets and watched the house. Suddenly, without warning, Aggie turned the hose directly on my left ear and held it there. There's somebody coming, she cried. Merciful heavens, what'll I do with the hose? You can turn it away from me, I snapped. So she did, and at that instant a young man emerged from the shrubbery. He did not speak at once, probably he could not. I happened to look at Hutchins, and, for all her usual savoir-faire, as Charlie Sands called it, she was clearly uncomfortable. Tish, engaged in a struggle at that moment and sitting back like a robin, did not see him at once. Well, said the young man, and again, well, upon my word. He seemed out of breath with surprise, and he took off his hat and mopped his head with a handkerchief. And, of course, as though things were not already bad enough, Aggie sneezed at that instant, as she always does when she is excited. And for just a second, the hose was on him. It was unexpected, and he almost staggered. He looked at all of us, including Hutchins, and ran his handkerchief round inside his collar. Then he found his voice. Really, he said, this is awfully good of you. We do need rain, don't we? Tish was on her feet by that time, but she could not think of anything to say. I'm sorry if I startled you, said the young man. I'm, I'm a bit startled myself. There is nothing to make a fuss about, said Hutchins crisply. We are getting worms to go fishing. I see, said the young man. Quite natural, I'm sure. And where are you going fishing? Hutchins surprised us all by rudely turning her back on him. Considering we were on his property and had turned his own hose on him, a little tact would have been better. Tish had found her voice by that time. We broke a window in the tool house, she said, but I put fifty cents on the sill. 
Thank you, said the young man. Hutchins wheeled at that and stared at him in the most disagreeable fashion, but he ignored her. We are trespassing, said Tish, but I hope you understand. We thought the family was away. I just happened to be passing through, he explained. I'm awfully attached to the place, for various reasons. Whenever I'm in town, I spend my evenings wandering through the shrubbery and remembering uh, happier days. I think the lamps are going out, said Hutchins sharply. If we're to get back to town, ah, he broke in, so you have come out from the city. Surely, said Hutchins to Tish, it is unnecessary to give this gentleman any information about ourselves. We have done no damage except the window, he said. We've paid for that, she said in a nasty tone, and to Tish, how do we know this place is his? He's probably some newspaper man, and if you tell him who you are, this whole thing will be in the morning paper, like the eggs. I give you my word of honour, he said, that I am nothing of the sort. In fact, if you will give me a little time, I'd, I'd like to tell all about myself. I've got a lot to say that's highly interesting, if you'll only listen. Hutchins, however, only gave him a cold glance of suspicion and put the pails in the car. Then she got in and sat down. I take it, he said to her, that you decline either to give or to receive any information. Absolutely. He sighed then. Aggie declares. Of course, he said, though I haven't really the slightest curiosity, I could easily find out, you know, your license plates. Are under the cushion I'm sitting on, said Hutchins, and started the engine. Really, Hutchins, said Tish, I don't see any reason for being so suspicious. I have always believed in human nature, and seldom have I been disappointed. The young man has done nothing to justify rudeness, and since we are trespassing on his place, huh, was all Hutchins said. The young man sauntered over to the car, with his hands thrust into his coat pockets. He was nice-looking, especially then, when he was smiling. Hutchins, he said, well, that's a clue anyhow. It's, it's an uncommon name. You didn't happen to notice a large, no trespassing sign by the gate, did you? Hutchins only looked ahead and ignored him. As Tish said afterward, we had a good many worms anyhow. And, as the young man and Hutchins had clearly taken an awful dislike to each other at first sight, the best way to avoid trouble was to go home. So she got into the car. The young man helped her and took off his hat. Come out any time you like, he said affably. I'm not here at all in the daytime, and the grounds are really rather nice. Come out and get some roses, with some pretty good ones, English importations. If you care to bring some children from the tenements out for a picnic, please feel free to do it. We're not selfish. Hutchins rudely started the car before he had finished, but he ignored her and waved a cordial farewell to the rest of us. Bring as many as you like, he called. Sunday is a good day. Ask Miss, Miss Hutchins to come out and bring some friends along. We drove back at the most furious rate. Tish was at last compelled to remonstrate with Hutchins. 
Not only are we going too fast, she said, but you were really rude to that nice young man. I wish I had turned the hose on him and drowned him, said Hutchins between her teeth. End of section 15